Welcome to Force Points to the Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Erica Pierce to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Always covered in 15 minutes or less. Now, let's get to the point. Hi, and welcome back to To The Point Cybersecurity. I am one of your hosts, Erica Pierce, and joined, of course, by Eric Trexler. How are you doing this week, Eric? Great, as always, Erica. We're going back to the press. I love it. Yeah, I actually love when we interview um, press folks, or I shouldn't say interview, when we talk to press folks, because they're always doing such um, interesting stories, and they always bring such an interesting perspective. And so um, this week, we're excited to have Phil Goldstein, sorry about that, um, Senior Editor of Fed Tech and State Tech. How are you doing, Phil? I'm great. How are you? Doing great. So um, again, thank you for joining us. Um, You must have nothing to write about these days, huh? (laughs) No, nothing at all. Uh, Cybersecurity and... uh, Boring. Very boring space, right, Phil? Nothing's happening. Nothing ever happens in uh, the areas that I cover. Nothing. What did you write about before cybersecurity? Um, So before I was writing about topics like cybersecurity and government IT, uh, I spent seven years covering the wireless industry. So I was working for a business-to-business media publication called Fierce Wireless and wrote basically exclusively about the wireless industry, which was pretty cool because I started doing that um, in – the fall of 2008. So if you think back, that was a couple months after the iPhone 3G had just come out. And I wound up covering that all the way up until the end of 2015. So when we were kind of in the early phases of adoption of 4G LTE. So um, I got to see kind of the whole smartphone revolution take off. And uh, that was really cool. I'm always interested in in an individual's journey to cyber. There, there's so many diverse paths, but everybody seems to be coming here. It's great. Yeah, good job, security, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least for now. I mean, problem isn't getting any better. Yeah. Well, Worse yeah. each year. <laughs> so, Phil, you cover both state as well as as federal in terms of um, government and, and cybersecurity and, and technology issues, and so. Just would, would love to first start there. I mean, what are you seeing across state and, and federal uh, tech that's different, that's, that's similar from a security perspective? You know, there's a lot of efforts happening, I, I would imagine, at both levels of government, um, local as well, but that's a different story, in terms of just, you know, the strategy, realizing that, you know, the threat landscape is very different. And I think we hear a, a lot about, um, or I personally probably hear a lot about what's happening at the federal level. At the state level, I tend to hear more about just some of the threats that are happening that are shutting down, you know, state government and local government. But what what are you seeing when you look across both state and federal? What what's, what are your thoughts in terms of how things are being done um, in a similar fashion and how things are done different and, and what challenges are, are different and, and the same? Sure. That's a great question. It's uh, so, a long question. I know. I, as I was saying at the end, I was like, OK, this is a very long winded <laughs> question. <laughs> I, I, I get where you're coming from. So I, I also at, tend to ask really long questions, <laughs> long wind up. So uh, I would say that some of the similarities that I'm seeing in terms of the things that I'm reporting on are that both federal uh, IT security leaders and state and local government IT security leaders are facing a skills gap 
Um, that's nothing new. That's been kind of a concern for a long time. Um, but they're starting to think about creative ways to uh, approach that skills gap, whether that's through increased use of artificial intelligence and automation tools to kind of um, augment the uh, capacity of the staff that they have or allow their staff to spend less time on kind of rote cybersecurity uh, log monitoring type activities and focus on more higher level analytical activities. Um, you're seeing at both levels of government um, a need to kind of continuously evolve security defenses because the threat landscape is always evolving and the threats are growing more sophisticated. So I think that a couple of years ago, the shift away from you know signature-based cybersecurity defenses to behavior-based, and I think that that is now kind of uh, evolving even further where you're starting to see a major shift away from a purely uh, perimeter focused cybersecurity approach in government to more of a data protection focus. You know, you're seeing this most significantly in the federal space when it comes to the focus on high level assets or high value assets rather. And you're also starting to see a tentative, I would say, embrace of the zero trust mm-hmm. cybersecurity model. Um, so those are the similarities. I think that there are some things that are quite different. Uh, I think that the threat of ransomware, for example, is much more prevalent at the state and local level than it is in the federal environment. We're certainly uh, seeing that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're good for whatever reason. They're easier targets or nobody wants to, to uh, really piss off the feds. I don't know. But we're definitely seeing that at the state and local level. Yes, Eric, I'm sorry. <laughs> No, I mean, it's. I think part of that is because the attackers know that the state and locals just don't have the resources and the know-how that the federal government does. So they are seen as much easier and softer targets. Right. So do you have any good examples that you've seen in your travels of, of an agency or an organization using artificial intelligence? I, I hear a lot of talk, but I don't see the... I don't see the actual applicability yet. So it's interesting. I was just at the Imagination ELC conference in Philadelphia, and we asked some federal IT security folks about this specific topic. And the one example that I could point to is I spoke with Guy Cavallo, who's the deputy CIO of the Small Business Administration. And he was talking about how they are using AI tools to really sift through large amounts of data very quickly to detect and respond to uh, threat indicators that they see. And they're also using AI-based tools to detect anomalous behavior more efficiently so that staff can be alerted and remediation can occur. So Guy was talking to me about if you saw him logging on from a different location in the country than he normally logs in on, you know that would be flagged. If you saw him Uh, logging in from an international location that would raise even more suspicion. So I think that it's not really very, uh, I would say, sophisticated analysis. It's more kind of using these tools to sift through log data and find anomalous patterns and then have that alert IT staff. Okay. Interesting. would be curious to know, what was the conference called? The Imagination ELC? 
Yeah, it's the uh, Executive Leadership Conference put on by the organization ACT IAC. ACT IAC, yeah. Yeah. And so um, the past couple of years they've had it in Philadelphia. It used to be held every year in Williamsburg. There were a lot of great conversations there about cybersecurity and how things are evolving. There are definitely folks from OMB and DHS there, um, in addition to you know all the other agencies that you could expect. Anything that surprised you that you heard while you were there in terms of the look to the future? It was interesting. I spoke with Dorothy Aronson, who's the CIO of the National Science Foundation, and she said that she would love it if, as things evolved, cybersecurity for government agencies became more of a utility service so that every agency didn't need to specialize in cybersecurity and have cybersecurity take up so much of their IT resources, they would, you know, prefer, she said, to focus on their mission. Um, They could kind of buy or access uh, cybersecurity as kind of a common shared utility service that could be available to different agencies across the government. So that's interesting, Phil. Um, Eric, what do you think about that? Be curious to hear your opinion on cybersecurity as a utility. Well, I think IT as a utility or a service is a great idea. Cybersecurity being a a functional supporting component of IT, which enables the business, um, is really nirvana in my opinion, right? The business, the the National Science Foundation's business is not to run an IT shop. It's not to do security. It's to do National Science Foundation activities. And anytime we can free up an organization, whatever it may be, to do their primary mission and make it easier – that's what we should do. It should be like electricity. You plug into the wall and it's just there for you. You're secure and you can take care of business. Good point. For sure. Good point. Phil, want to switch it up a little bit. You know, we are actually recording the week of November 4th. So we had an election uh, election this week. And so I know election security, not so much with the election we had since this was a, a mid-year, but um, certainly gearing up for next year is a huge issue. Um, We had Chris Krebs uh, on our podcast a few months ago, and he said, you know, really from his perspective, it's one of the number one issues that they're focused on right now. Um, What are you seeing in terms of, you know, election security, both at the state as well as as federal level? Sure. Um, I think that the activity is more pronounced uh, right now at the state level, since the states, you know, do administer their own uh, elections. So you're seeing a lot of state CIOs and CISOs uh, coordinate with their secretaries of state's office and their uh, election officials. You know, some of the kind of basic blocking and tackling that needs to happen when it comes to cybersecurity in terms of uh, training and awareness, you know, just making sure that everybody's coordinated and on the same page. From a technology perspective, you are seeing things like uh, risk-limited auditing um, and, you know, more uh, advanced firewall and intrusion uh, protection uh, defenses. You're seeing those kinds of investments being made. And the federal government is obviously, you know, through uh, the Department of Homeland Security and the cybersecurity through CISA at DHS, they're working with the states to try to get on the same page and coordinate and make sure that The state and local officials have all of the knowledge and resources that they need to protect their election infrastructure. To me, this is such a critical issue. 
I mean, the, the difference we, – we, we've always had voting challenges. You know, any, any country out there, it's easy to lose paper ballots. It's easy to add some, change some, whatever it may be. I, I, to me, the difference as we go into this cyber-connected world is the, the ability for somebody external to the United States to reach into the United States and actually change the will of the people. Right. It, it, it's it's very easy to get into the United States from a faraway land. We know this. I mean, we just you, if, if you don't know that, I don't know where where you've been. Um, we've got to protect this crucial infrastructure, this component of our of our you know, the foundation of the United States of America, because it's so easy for somebody to come in and cause disruption, maybe not change the state of the election, but. There are a lot of nation states, there are a lot of individuals, there are a lot of organizations who would like nothing else but for the United States of America to be very distracted and focused on something else. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think that since 2016, a lot of state officials uh, have really kind of woken up to the threat that's out there, not just from a pure kind of intrusion into voter registration logs or voter registration books and things like that, but also uh, disinformation and media manipulation and social media manipulation. I spoke at the NACIO conference uh, a couple of weeks ago with the chief security official from Michigan, and he said that they're focusing part of their cybersecurity efforts specifically around combating what they expect to be misinformation campaigns going into the 2020 election. The threat landscape runs the full gamut, um, and it's not just your typical nation-state actor trying to break into infrastructure. It's more sophisticated than that. Phil, that's a great point. I mean, the ability to sway the election from misinformation, fake news as we we all talk about, right? (laughs) But really, really put out information that is not accurate, that people believe. They believe it. As a journalist, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You, you you put out your spoken word. I'm assuming you believe in it or it's factually reported when you report. Mm-hmm. What happens to all the third-party material that isn't coming from an American or isn't coming from somebody that's going to sway opinion? That may be the bigger issue than actually hacking into an in, into a voting machine or a district. Yeah, I uh, tend to agree with you. I think that state officials – need to do a better job of combating that misinformation and, you know, being kind of the arbiters people can either go to or better, you know, proactively kind of weeding out that disinformation um, and reaching out to the public to make sure that they're getting accurate information. Because let's be honest, folks, you know, media literacy in general is probably not that great, especially with a lot of people getting their news these days from places like Facebook, they're doing, the, the social media companies are doing some things to kind of flag uh, content and think, make sure that things are as verified as they can be. But there's a lot of misinformation that's being you know, spread around. And I think that what we saw in 2016 with you know, the Russian activities was that was a big part of it. It wasn't necessarily trying to change the vote tallies. It was trying to influence the way that public opinion was going and have that kind of ripple through to the election. Well, it's fascinating how Facebook is now banning all political ads, right? I mean, we're having... It's a- well, that's, that's, that's Twitter. Facebook is not doing it. Oh, okay. Okay. Facebook is, Facebook is actually, you know, said and has taken a lot of heat for basically saying, 
we're not going to fact check political advertising. We don't think that that is our role. And I think that Mark Zuckerberg has taken a lot of heat and criticism from that. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, we saw Jack Dorsey from Twitter say, you know, no, this is our kind of responsibility as, um, you know, this kind of a platform. So as a, as, a, as a journalist, you know, the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Mm-hmm. As we get this, this fake news, this information that is not accurate, where do you sit on that? I mean, we, we don't want to stop people from being able to say something, but somebody could literally come in and, and – publish incriminating information about me they stole off my phone or out of my house, or they could sp- spread disinformation, information that's not accurate. It's so easy these days. I would say that it is becoming much easier to spread misinformation. There are so many fewer uh, gatekeepers than there used to be, you know, certainly in the media landscape. And social media kind of just turbocharges that and allows information that is hearsay and not based on any verifiable facts to really ricochet, you know, around the internet and then get into the bloodstream public opinion. As a journalist and somebody who's committed to reporting the truth about, you know, everything that I write about when it comes to government IT, that is something that's deeply disturbing to me. And obviously, there's only so much that Congress can do, can do. right? Yeah. There's only so much that Congress can do to kind of uh, limit that. I think that what we're seeing in the debate between Facebook and Twitter about political advertising is that these companies don't want to, at least in Facebook's case, don't want to sort of embrace their role as a a media platform the way that, you know, CBS or the New York Times is, but really they are. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are getting their information from that and that influences elections. And, you know, that is kind of a, uh, I think in government, a under-discussed aspect of how cybersecurity is evolving is the way in which things can be manipulated that are not directly tied to government entities, but that still have a profound influence and impact on our government, you know, in this country. No, exactly. It's it's funny. My dad will get something off of Facebook usually. And it's like, okay, you do you really believe this? <laughs> He'll send it These to my facts. son and I, and I don't I, I don't do anything on Facebook. He'll send it to my son, the doctor who's got a history of research and and you know, studying things. And uh, they fundamentally disagree with each other politically, too. So it's usually political. My son will come back with the research. And here are the five reasons why that is factually inaccurate. And I can't understand that they get into the spat. Um, but my dad truly believes, like, that is what happened. And it's it's bizarre. Sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a real, it's, crazy. it's a real, real phenomenon. And it, it's something that I think is growing more sophisticated and pernicious and it's something that I think everybody who is kind of involved in cybersecurity, whether you're in government or in the private sector, has a responsibility to work against. I spoke also 
at the ELC conference with somebody from the Census Bureau mm, about yeah, the uh, 2020 Census, and they have a whole operation that's being dedicated to combating misinformation about the census and making sure that people have accurate information and that they're not dissuaded from not participating in the census because of misinformation. Well, I think next year is going to be interesting on a number of fronts. So <laughs> you'll have to, it will, Erica, it will. you'll have to come back, Phil, um, especially as we get closer, I think, to the election and sort of share with us what you're hearing out there in, in the field. Yeah, I'd love to. So Phil, you're a Yankees fan. I am. Where's that come from? Uh, well, my dad uh, was born in the Bronx, and growing up, that meant that we were all Yankees fans. And so my uh, my parents no longer actually live in New York. I uh, definitely retain my affinity. So I was pretty disappointed when <laughs> uh, the Astros beat the Yankees this year, but I was very happy when the Nationals then uh, went on to beat the Astros. So I'm all for... Uh, all for anybody who beats the Yankees in the playoffs, I'd like to see them lose. Very nice. Very <laughs> we'll nice. We'll take it as a Nats fan. <laughs> I was sure. going to say, Erica, you have to be pretty happy. I am thrilled. Thrilled. I mean, I'm I'm happy for all Nats fans. It's been a uh, spectacular time in Washington sports, except if you're uh, a Redskins fan. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah we're, not, we're not going to go yeah. there on this podcast. Not as well, podcast. We will yeah, end the podcast think, on that note. <laughs> yeah, I think being all D.C. residents at this point, yeah. or, or the D.C. metro area, I think we're all pretty happy about that. That was that was a great time. We really appreciate your time today and your insight. It's it's always great to bring a journalist on, somebody who you know really looks at it from a, a research and fact based perspective, whatever the topics may be. For sure. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Phil, and thanks to everyone that tuned in this week. And please continue to check us out. We are here every week talking uh, all things cybersecurity. And please give us a rating on iTunes, subscribe to us, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, um, and just keep listening. So thanks so much for, uh, for, for being a, a listener. Until next week. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store. 